Well, if you would, would you please turn in your Bible to 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. 1 John 4, verse 7. And you can find this passage in the Pew Bible below the seats on page 1023. 1023. This morning's sermon passage is part of an extended section in which the Apostle John returns to something that he's talked about often throughout the letter, and that is the importance of love, specifically Christians' love for one another. John has previously addressed the importance of love in the letter, but he returns to it again in order to press its importance further. And so rather than try to cover it all in one section, we're going to break this into parts, and we'll be spending the next few weeks together in in the matter of love. Today's sermon will cover just the first part, 1 John 4, 7 through 11. And as we begin to consider the matter of love, I I think this is a good time to say thank you to all the moms. Uh, If you weren't in here when the announcements were given, um, I think you got to thank you. And I want to say again, thank you. Whether you're a mom of younger, older, or adult children, a grandmother, or a spiritual mom who disciples young believers, and we do put spiritual mothering in the mothering category, and I think that that's a good thing because we need spiritual moms I want to thank you, and this church wants to thank you for all that you do for your children, your patience, your generosity, your kindness, your nurturing, your acts of service. The Lord is using you as an instrument of his grace. And though sometimes what you do goes unnoticed, I know in our house a lot of what my wife does goes unnoticed for our four boys, uh, God sees what you are doing. He sees all that you are doing. He recognizes it and ultimately Uh, He is pleased by your love, your acts of service, your kindness towards others, especially your children. Uh, At the same time, for some, uh, Mother's Day has an element of sorrow to it because of the loss that you are remembering. Some of you no longer have your mother here. She's not alive anymore. Uh, There's uh, other sorrows that uh, this day may bring. Maybe you wanted to be a mom, but you never were a mom, or you haven't been able to yet have your own children, or maybe you've lost a child. Uh, My hope today is that you would find strength and comfort and peace and even joy as you consider this passage and God's love for you. Uh, And now, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. 1 John 4, 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is God's word for his people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. You may be seated. And now let's pray for God's help in obeying this passage. Great God, we do praise you. For in the gospel, we see that you are for us and not against us. We sung those words together that you are a God who is for us. And may the truth of that reality press itself more and more upon our hearts. Father, I'm confident that some of your children in this place are wrestling with assurance. This letter that you have given us through the Apostle John is meant to increase our assurance. 
to help us be more confident in, in the reality that, that you have done what we could never have done. You have made us your children. You have purchased us. You have redeemed us. You have adopted us into your family. Father, I pray that for any Christian in this sanctuary this morning who is wrestling with, who is doubting that reality, that our time in this passage would increase assurance for that believer. Lord, as we consider your greatness, your grace, your love, your mercy, as we have sung to you truths about you and sung these truths to one another, glorious, wonderful truths, we remember that we continue to struggle with sin. We have sinned in word, in thought, in action. We have not loved one another as you have called us to love each other. And so we confess that reality now together. Corporately, we say again that we have sinned. We have done things, we have thought things, we have said things that are not pleasing to you and that have harmed, that have hindered, that, are, that have destroyed instead of built up your people. And we repent, Father. We confess our sins and at the same time together, even near and around the very people that we've sinned against, your people, we confess that Jesus Christ has paid for our sins on the cross and that we are trusting in him alone, his finished work to, to be the atoning sacrifice for not just sins in general, but these very sins that we have just confessed. Christ has paid for them. And we believe that and rejoice in that reality this morning. We have sinned and Christ has paid for our sins. Lord, we pray again for our brothers and sisters in this church who are struggling, who are suffering, who are going through great trials. I think of a sister facing difficulties with, with a battle uh, with cancer. I think of another sister who is struggling with various health issues. A brother who is going through loss and, and grieving. Young Christians who are struggling with their sanctification and, and wrestling with, with believing the gospel. Father, all these things and the things that I don't know about, that we don't know about as a church, uh, may they be used to strengthen faith, to remind us of the preciousness of your word and, and our need for the gospel. Use these sufferings, these trials, even cancer, uh, to be a means of hope for the lost and a reminder of, of the reality, the truthfulness of the gospel, that you truly have saved us. You will sustain us. And even in, in our last days, even in our closing moments, the gospel is true. And may we believe it. May our brothers and sisters who are suffering believe it. Father, uh, on this day in which we celebrate the gift of, of mothers, uh, we, we want to celebrate all of your good gifts. We recognize that all the children that you have entrusted to our care, not just to mothers, but to this church, are a blessing and a gift. We recognize that this building that you have entrusted to us to use for your purposes is a gift. We, we recognize that every single dollar that has, has come to us is, is a gift. Yes, you call us to work and to earn it, and, and if, you have not, if you have not given us the means to, to, to work and, and to earn that dollar or the people that have given us that dollar, we would not have it. Help us to be a grateful, a thankful people who are not prone to asking for more and more and more, but are prone to saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. And may we do that in a practical way by thanking you for our mothers today. Lord, as we come to this text and, and we 
think about the reality of it and what it calls us to do. I pray that you would not allow your people to run from it, to dismiss it, to excuse uh, things that we have not done, ways that we are not loving to one another, but you would use this passage to strengthen this church, to increase our love for one another. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I suspect that if you were to ask the young children in our church to tell you something about God, many of them would tell you the very truth that John tells us in this morning's passage, that God is love. They would say, uh, God is loving. God loves me. It is one of the first truths, if not the first truth, that many of us were taught about God. We went to Sunday school, and, and our Sunday school teacher said, I want you to know God loves you. We hear that over and over again from the time that we were young, if we grow up in the church. It's interesting that, that whether we grew up in a liberal church, that is a church that diminishes the authority of Scripture, or we grew up in a conservative, theologically speaking, church, we likely learn this very truth. God is love. And just as we can take a mother's love for granted, at times our familiarity with this essential truth about God can cause us to take it for granted that God is love. We get used to the thought God is love, but, but we must not get used to this thought. God is not hate. God is, is not an angry God towards his people. God is love. Though it is one of the first truths we learned about God, it remains just as wonderful, just as glorious, just as amazing as when we first learned it. Church, God is love. In fact, I believe that for the Christian, the importance of this truth about God does not decrease over time like the potency of a spice in your cupboard, which loses its strength the longer it sits on the shelf. For a wedding gift, one of my cousins gave Amy and I this wonderful collection of spices, expensive collection of spices. Uh, after five years, as we were kind of, hey, maybe it's time to go through the spices, we went through the spices. More than half of them were expired, and, and I don't think we used those, those spices. And we just proceeded to eventually throw them. It's really hard to throw out spices, right? Five, eight dollars. And, and, and the reality is, is you could use it, but, but it doesn't taste as good, that spice, the longer it sits on the shelf. God's love is not like that. This truth that God is love increases in potency the more that we grow in our understanding of what it means that God is love. And the more we experience God's love personally, the more precious this truth is about God. You see, this truth that God is love continues to provide the Christian who considers it, who meditates on God's love with access to unending comfort, immeasurable joy and strength to face each day. If you consider some of the martyrs, the, the Christian martyrs who have given up their life, one of the great things that have, ha, ha, has settled their hearts and prepared them to go to the stake or to be burned for the gospel is the love of God. Church, these next few Sundays in 1 John will provide us with, a, with another opportunity to consider together what it means that God is love, how God loves us as his people, and the implication of God's love, the implications, because do not be confused about this. God's love has impl implications, commands. He loves us, and because of his love, we are to do certain things. And this passage, this section in 1 John, addresses some of the implications of God's love. Though many have heard the truth that God is love, there, there's a lot of confusion about love today. And I think really that's been the case 
for, for, for time ever since the fall. What does it mean to love? And so because there's much confusion about what it means that God, that, that there's much confusion about love, there's much confusion about what it means that God is love. Well, the Oxford Dictionary defines love as an intense feeling of deep affection or a great interest and pleasure in something. I think that's a helpful beginning definition of love. An intense feeling of deep affection or a great interest and pleasure in something. Last Sunday, I said that I sometimes struggle to communicate to my family, to my loved ones, what, what I mean when I say I love you. And that's why, because it's this intense feeling of deep affection. Some, sometimes it's surprising. All of a sudden, I love you. Where did that come from? It's this deep, intense feeling that's hard to put into language, to, to use human words to describe. The order in the statement that God is love is important. God is love. Love is not God. Some have made their love, some have made love their God. They worship and serve their intense feelings. And that's really where the culture has gone, loving these intense feelings. But to worship love instead of worshiping God is to worship an idol, a false God. Or as C.S. Lewis put it in his book, The Four Loves, when love itself becomes a God, it becomes demonic. It turns in on itself. You see, the one true God who is love is the triune God revealed to us in the scriptures, in the Bible. Father, Son, and Spirit. And as Trinity, God has always loved and been love. What was going on before creation? The Father was loving the Son. The Son was loving the Father. The Spirit was loving the Father and the Son, and so on and so on. God did not have to create us to love. For in the Trinity, there is and always has been love. Earlier in 1 John 1.5, we are told that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This is a reference to God's holiness. Then later in chapter 4, verse 24, we are told that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. In this morning's passage, we're told that God is love. So God is light, he is holy, God is spirit, and God is love. There are other scriptures that tell us about God's other attributes, and he has many of them. God is eternal. He has always existed. God is sovereign. He truly is free. He is the, the one that has free will completely and truly. His will is free. He is sovereign. He is powerful. God is righteous and gracious and kind and good. The list of God's attributes, attributes is long. Unlike us, God does not decrease or increase in a given attribute. What happens when we're born? We, we grow in certain attributes. Think of physical strength. We grow in our strength. And then what happens as we get older? Our physical strength decreases, though we don't want it to. And some of us are taking supplements and working out all the time just to try and slow down that decrease in our physical strength. But it's coming. Some of us are more loving at certain times and less loving. Here's the, the glorious truth about God. He is consistently all that he is and all of his attributes all the time, never increasing or decreasing. He's perfect. Not only that, there is no contradiction in and among his attributes. God's holiness, his sovereignty, and his justice are not at odds with his love. That's hard for us to comprehend sometimes. His justice, his sovereignty, and his holiness, they're all loving. God is free to love whomever and however he desires. Just like his grace and his mercy, his love is sovereign. We run from it sometimes. We don't want to be loved. And yet God chooses whom he loves and he loves as he pleases. 
In his systematic theology book, Michael Horton, professor of theology at, and apologetics at Westminster Seminary, writes, because God's attributes are identical with his essence, God not only loves, he is love. God loves absolutely and without any compulsion from the object of his love. God takes delight in that which he does, not need, but nevertheless desires. Here too, we must see that human love is not the measure of divine love, but vice versa. God is the original, we are the copy. And so love comes from God, and it is defined by who God is and how God loves. Human love is not a social construct or a result of evolutionary process. It comes from God. And though it's not the only thing or sometimes the best thing to point to when we're talking with somebody who doesn't believe in a creator, I think it is something to point to. There are these intense, deep feelings and connections and affections and emotions. Where did that come from? Those who deny the existence of a creator will say it just kind of developed over time. And this big bang happened, things developed and evolved, and all of a sudden, boom, there's love at some point. And, and love is, a, is something that, that we've just developed and, and created as humans. I think that's really hard to hold on to if you've ever experienced true love. What? You're saying that that came from nothing? No, it didn't. It came from a, a God, a creator, the God of the Bible. In verse 7, John says this very thing, love is from God. God is the source of true and genuine love. The love that a mother or a father has for their child. The, the love that a husband has for his wife. The love that a wife has for her husband. The love between family members and friends. That can all trace, be traced back to the God who is love. But consider that for a moment. I, I think it's safe to say that all of us have in some way, shape, or form experienced love. You might be somebody who rejects the gospel that you need Jesus, that you're a sinner in need of a savior. And yet, because God is gracious, even to those who reject him and hate him, who do not turn to his son, you have experienced love. And that love ultimately finds its source in the God of love. The embrace of a mother with their child, the reunion between friends who haven't seen each other for a while, and that affection, that joy that comes from being with a friend. Even if you hate God, God is so loving and so gracious that he has allowed you to experience whatever love you have experienced. That's amazing. Now, this doesn't mean that everything people call love is truly love or that it is from God. Some people call love what God calls sin. This love is not love and it's not from God. It is not loving to love someone or something in a, a way that contradicts what God's word commands. That is idolatry. It's a rejection of the God of love who we're to love with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Any unrighteous feeling or unholy pleasure in something or someone comes from sin. That does not come from God. And so somebody has an intense feeling and they say, well, God made me this way. No! The fall has led to you feeling these things that contradict God's word. That's not love. That's sin. The love that John is speaking directly about in this passage, though, is a specific love. It's the love that Christians have for one another. It is the love that comes from being saved by God's grace and adopted into God's family. It's the love between brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, when you were saved, Christian, you weren't saved individually on your own to live individually on your own. You were saved and brought into a people. Christ's church. You were saved and, and brought into a new family. 
God's family. And now you have, by grace, been given brothers and sisters. Look again at the first two verses. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Here John says that our love for one another is evidence that we are true Christians. That that we have been born of God and that we know God. and, And also that the opposite is then true. That if we don't love one another, well then that's evidence that we actually don't know God and that we're not born of God, that we're not true Christians. That, that's a bold statement, especially for those of us who, who celebrate, understand, rejoice every single day in justification by faith. We're justified by grace through faith. It's the finished work of Christ that, that God has used to declare us righteous before himself. It's, it's not our works, it's, it's God's work. And yet here we, we see that one of the tests of a true conversion One of the fruits that reveals that we have been regenerated by God, that we are truly indeed born again, a new creation brought to life in Jesus Christ, is this, that we love one another. It almost sounds so basic. For some of us, it might say, well, that sounds just kind of too gushy, you know, too too lovey-dovey, too kumbaya-y, you know, like just love each other. That's it, yeah. (laughs) Over and over again, we've seen in this letter, love, love is the evidence that you have been born again, that you are a Christian. That you will love Christians. You will love Christ's church. You will love the Christians in this room, in your church. This test of love should not surprise us because throughout the letter, John's been using three types of tests. The doctrine test, the obedience test, and the love test to, again, increase the true Christian's assurance. He wants you to know, Christian, with greater certainty that you are indeed a Christian. That you would not go back and forth on whether or not God loves you. And so he points to these evidences in the form of test and, and we're to take them and consider it. Do I love God's people? I do. Then that's evidence more and more that I'm a Christian, that you are a Christian. And he also wants this to happen. He wants non-Christians who profess to be Christians to read his letter and say, I don't, I don't line up with that. Not so that we would just sit there if we're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian and say, well, I guess I'm not saved. But so that you would say, I need Jesus. I need a Savior. I've been saying I'm a Christian for 10, 20, 30 years. And I read 1 John and it's pretty clear to me, I am not a Christian. So 1 John has this this double-edged sword to it. It it helps us Christians know that we are Christians and helps the non-Christians say, I'm not a Christian. So ultimately we would turn to Christ, repent, and by God's grace, become Christians. In last Sunday's passage, 1 John 4, 1 through 6, John's focus was on the importance of doctrine. He again goes over the doctrine test. Specifically, the doctrine that he focused on is the doctrine of Christ. And it's an essential doctrine because, again, if we get who Jesus is wrong or we get what he did wrong, then we get the gospel wrong because only the Christ proclaimed by the apostles and revealed to us in the scriptures, in the Bible, can save us. The Mormon Jesus cannot save you. The Jehovah's Witness Jesus cannot save you. The Muslim Jesus cannot save you. The Buddhist Jesus cannot save you. The New Age Jesus cannot save you. Only this Jesus revealed to us in the scriptures can save us. So we need to get this doctrine right, our doctrine of Christ. 
We must know the truth about Christ. We must believe it. We must repent of our sins and trust only in who Jesus is and what he did for us. That he really did come in the flesh, John says, a true human and live a perfectly obedient life in our place. Where we failed, he succeeded. Where we disobeyed, he obeyed completely and perfectly. We need that to be true about Jesus. We need him to die on the cross, truly, physically, as a human for our human sins. We need him to be raised from the dead bodily so that we would be justified and one day be bodily raised as well. But in this morning's passage, John returns to love. Now, I believe it would be wrong to pit doctrine, obedience, and love against one another as if one is, is, is the only thing that we need to look at. They are all essential. We must believe the truth about God and the gospel. And if we really believe the truth, then we will obey God. So if we say, I believe that Jesus is Lord, and then we live our own lives as if we are Lord, there's a contradiction. Do we really believe that Jesus is Lord? So all of these tests play together. They work together. But in a sense, I do believe that love is, is the fruit of right doctrine. Good doctrine will lead to love. And, and love is the cause of our obedience. Why do we obey God's word? Why do we do it? Because we love God. Because we know who he is. We've experienced his love and now we want to obey. It's not that we have to obey. It's that we want to obey. And so love is the final and the greatest test. I, I believe Paul makes this point clear in 1 Corinthians 13. It's the love chapter, this famous chapter that is so often read at weddings. Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Do you see there? I, I can have all these gifts and these abilities and, and, and I can even die for, for God, but if I, if I don't have love, I have nothing. Then picking up in verse 8, we read, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Friends, if you profess faith in Christ, if you claim to be a Christian and you really are well, you will not only love Christ, you will love Christ's people. You will love Christ's church. So you see, the matter of love is essential. It's crucial that we really understand what it means, what it, what it looks like for us to love one another. This is one of those passages that we quickly just kind of want to, yep, yep, in general, say, I, I do, I do, I love. There's this certain feeling that I have when I think of the church. And, and we can get excited about loving one another but it's also one of those passages that we can be quick to just kind of dismiss and, and not really press into. And so my hope this morning is that we'd press into it further. How are we to love other Christians? What is this going to look like? 
Well, in verses 9 and 10, John gives us direction, and he, and he does it by pointing us to Jesus. And this is the love of God. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Some wrongly think that the proof that God loves them is their house. They said, look, look at my house. I, 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 here, now I know that God loves me. Or the money that they have in their bank account, their car, their spouse, or their health. Now to be certain, God does give us physical and financial and material blessings. We thanked him for those earlier. And he does this as he sees fit. Some he gives more to, some he gives less, less to. Some have their health, some don't have. But the apex of God's love for us and the ultimate way that God loved us is in this way, by sending his son. The coming of God's son and the work that Christ has done for us is the fullest revelation of God's love. Jesus Christ is the concrete proof of God's love for you, Christian. Do you want to know if God loves you? He sent his son. And in sending his son, he proved it, Christian, that he loves you. See, our greatest need as humans is that we need to be saved from the consequence of our sin. Our biggest problem was, or is, if you're not a Christian, with God. And only God can fix it. You need life if you're not a Christian. If you are a Christian, you needed life. And in Christ, God has given you life. God loved us by sending his son into the world so that we spiritually dead sinners would be rescued from hell and brought to life in Jesus Christ. Uh, this past week, I had the opportunity to show my oldest son, Isaiah, the, the school that I went to, my elementary school, from K-5 through 5th grade, Milwaukee Spanish Immersion. And it's, it's on the other side of town from where we live, and so I, I haven't driven by, by that school in, in, a, in years, maybe 20, 25 years. And I was dropping off a, one of his teammates, and we were coming back, and I took a little, uh, a little long cut to show him the school. And, and I made sure to bring him to a, a certain location, uh, I, I wanted him to see a certain classroom, not just because it was my favorite teacher, though she was one of my favorite teachers, but because I almost died in that classroom. And my boys know the story. They've heard it before. Uh, in 5K, I was in Mrs. Rivera's class, and I had a penny in my pocket. My, my babysitter that morning had given it to me, and I decided that I wanted to impress my friends. And so I flicked it up in the air, and maybe at some point I've shared this story in a sermon. If you've heard it before, sorry, but I think it fits. Uh, so I was flicking up a penny in the air and catching it, and my friends were kind of watching me, and I wanted to impress them, so I decided to catch it in my mouth. So I caught it in my mouth, and I don't know if I was surprised or something, but I took a gulp, and the penny lodged in my throat. I began gasping for air, holding my throat, probably turning red, purple, I don't know, and struggling to breathe. And the teacher's aide, Mr. Chavaria, uh, came running over. And, and I'm pretty sure they didn't train teacher's aid, aides with the Heimlich maneuver yet. So Mr. Chavaria did what, what came natural, what he thought would be best. He took me up by the ankles and he shook me many, many times. And as Mr. Chavaria shook me, uh, the, the penny dislodged and popped out of my throat and rolled across the room. And so I pointed, out to that, I pointed out to my son, that's where your dad almost died, where, at least where I think that classroom was. You see, in that moment, I, I nearly died. I wasn't dead yet, but I, I needed somebody to rescue me. If Mr. Chavaria had not taken me by my ankles and shook me upside down, I would be dead. And yet he did the very thing that I needed. Maybe not in the correct way, but I'm thankful that he did it. He saved my life. 
Christian is somebody who's been saved. They were spiritually dead. They've been brought to life. We needed life, and Christ came to bring us life. If you're not a Christian, you're still dead in your sin. What you need is life. And the way that God brings you life is not by shaking you upside down or, or pressing on your chest. He sends his son to rescue you from the hell that you deserve because of your sin. That's what Christ came to give us, life in him. God loved us by sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is, Christ came to atone for our sins by dying the death that we deserved so that instead of experiencing God's righteous wrath, all who trust in Christ experience God's undeserved favor. That's why I love that word propitiation. It captures both. Christ atoned for our sins, but in atoning for our sins, now we have favor with God. We're not even with God. We're not at zero with God, trying to earn all the way up to 10 or 100 or 1,000. We look as good as we can look before God because we're in Christ. We have his favor, just like we sang in that opening song. God is for us. He's not against us. And why? Because of Christ's propitiation for our sins. Consider again a portion of the quote that I shared with you earlier from Michael Horton. Without any compulsion from us, the object of his love... God took delight in that which he does not need, but nevertheless desires. Here too, we must see that human love is not the measure of divine love, but vice versa. God is the original. We are the copy. Church, we cannot truly, totally love one another the way that God loves us in Christ. We can't. But our love for one another will be similar to God's love, and that like God's love for us, our love for one another will be marked by certain things. It will be marked by sacrifice. If we truly love one another, it will mean sacrifice. Consider the love that God has shown you in Christ. Every single note of worship that Jesus received in glory before he took on flesh, he deserved. Every single sound of the cherubim and the seraphim and all those heavenly beings praising him, he deserved and more. And yet for a time, he stepped out of heaven and took on flesh to redeem a people who had rejected and rebelled against him. You and I, there was a sacrifice, a major sacrifice there. Not only that, but, but he did it for our good. Yes, for his glory, but for our good. And those same things are going to mark our love for one another. It's going to, it's going to be sacrificial and it's going to be for the other's good. Our Lord and Savior says this very thing, that our love will be like his love. It must be like his love in John 15, 12, and 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Our love must be sacrificial, church. It must not be for our own benefit, but for the other's benefit. The love that God commands us to love one another with is a love that imitates God's own love. It won't be exactly like his love because we cannot love the exact same way and degree that God loves, but we are to love like him. As God's redeemed image bearers, we're to reflect God's love to one another like a mirror. And, and if we do, our love will be marked by sacrifice and by seeking the other's good. Uh, in, in first service, this, this thought of kind of bubbling up, like a, a church full of love just bubbling up came to mind. I, I want to press it a little further. The, the soda can that's being shaken. God's love shaking us, church, so much so that we explode with love towards one another. 
It's so exciting, isn't it? But then I come off the pulpit and then I need to love. Actually do it. And that's when it gets hard. Some of you might be like, yeah, I'm excited. Let's do this loving one another thing. And then we actually have to do it. And then it's not so exciting anymore. But love for one another is not an option. It's not just evidence of being a true Christian. Love for one another is a command given to us from God. All who know God and have been born of God are told, commanded, must, that we must love one another. We see this in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The word ought here in verse 11 does not mean optional. We have the option of loving one another. And yet, isn't that what we're, we're prone to do? I'll love her. She's easy to love. I'm not going to love him because he's hard to love. I find him arrogant or prideful or rude or whatever it is. So we pick and choose the people that, based on our personality or our likes, how they vote, how they dress, where they come from, their educational background, to love. That's not the type of love that God calls us to love with, church. In other places in the ESV, the same word translated as ought in verse 11 is translated as duty obligated, debt, indebted, bound, or owe. Because God loves us, church, we must love one another. Because God so loved us, it is our duty to love one another. It's our obligation to love one another. We're indebted towards one another with love. We're bound to loving one another by God's love. We owe love to one another. That's strong language. And and I'm convinced it's biblical language. Paul says this very thing in Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. We're so prone to keeping a record of wrongs. She did this to me. I'm not going to talk to her. He said this about me. I'm not going to talk to him. What if we flip that? (laughs) I owe this love to her. I I owe this love to him. Would that not be so much more in line with the scripture? Rather than keeping a record of wrongs, but keeping a record of who we are to love. I need to love him. I need to love her. I need to love them all more and more. Help me, Lord. Help me to love your people more and more. How sweet, how beautiful would that be? In John 13, 34 and 35, the Lord again commands his disciples to love one another just as he has loved them. He has loved us. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Again, he points to evidence. How are people going to know you're Christians? Because you love each other. Yes, other scriptures call us to love our enemies, love non-Christians, but there's this great emphasis in the word of God with, with Christians loving one another. And how are you doing with that, church? How are you doing with that, Christian? I think of that, that hymn. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Not just in general, not just our love for the non-Christians, but our love for one another. That's attractive to the world. When families are breaking apart, people are turning on one another, people are in this this dog-eat-dog kind of mindset, whatever the phrase is. And here we are, loving each other, building one one another up. That's beautiful. That's evidence of gospel power at work in us. 
Now, we Christians are not loving one another to earn God's love. That's, that's not what's going on. We love one another because God has loved us. We can't help but love each other. When we're loving one another, it's the natural overflow of being loved. You, you think about children and how they take on certain traits from their parents, good and bad. I like to think that I'm passing on more good traits to our four boys than bad traits, but I'm sure that they're picking up on some of the, the goofy things that I do, the, the, the not-so-good things that I do. What is one of the traits that our God, our Father in heaven, passes on to his people, his children? Love. Deep, intense, beautiful, out-of-this-world love for each other. Again, not because we vote the same, not because we have the same color of skin, not because we dress the same, not because we cheer for the same sports teams, not because of any of that, but because we have been loved by God. And that changes us, church. In the gospel, God's love has freed us from sin so that we can love one another. In the Gospel Primer, it's a book that is one of my favorite devotions. We've been passing this out, encouraging people to buy it for a long time. It rehearses reasons why we are to preach the gospel to ourselves. It's available in the, at the book cart. And again, we don't make any money. We, we tend to lose money on that. But that's a ministry that exists so that we would get good gospel resources in your hands. So if you don't have a Gospel Primer, you're looking for a good, solid resource for devotions. It's a great one. And, and in it, Milton Vincent writes, when my mind is fixed on the gospel, I have ample stimulation to show God's love to other people. For I'm always willing to show love to others when I'm freshly mindful of the love that God has shown me. So one of the, the overflows of being gospel-centered, of being focused on Christ, is this. We will love each other, church. That's a sign, that's evidence, not just that individual Christians are loving one another, but that we as a church are growing becoming more and more the church that God calls us to be. And yet, really, what does this look like, practically speaking? We've talked about the cross and the gospel. Oh, that's beautiful, sacrificial, other-centered. That's what it's going to look like, this love. But Scripture is full of passages that, that give us very practical, specific ways on how we are to love one another. I want to consider two of them just briefly with you this morning. The first is the middle portion of 1 Corinthians 13, which I skipped over earlier. It gives us a very practical description of what it looks like for us, church, to love one another day to day as we serve Christ together. Because again, the thought of loving one another should excite the Christian. And then we actually have to do it. So what is it going to look like day to day as we seek to accomplish our mission as a church together? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is what it's going to look like for us in our relationships to love one another. If we're loving one another, church, we're going to treat each other a certain way. We're going to see each other as, as God's people, people that are so precious to God that Christ came to redeem and rescue them our brothers and sisters, we're going to be patient with and kind towards one another. We're not going to steamroll each other. We're not going to see each other as simply frustrating people who annoy us and we don't want to be around. We're going to be patient with those who are maybe struggling with a certain doctrine. We're going to say, come, let's meet together. 
Let's grab a cup of coffee or a, a cup of tea and pretty soon some lemonade. Open our Bibles. Get out our, our systematic theology and our, and our good gospel resources and study this truth out together. We're going to be kind towards one another. We're going to show goodness and love towards each other in, in our acts and in our everyday conversations. We're not going to be jealous or, of or prideful towards each other. We Christians are, are no longer competing with one another. One of the great blessings that I've found in the Christian life is, is that I don't have to compete anymore. Yes, we are to try our best when we play sports and do our best when it comes to academics and in other areas of life. But here's the great thing about, about the gospel and, and competition. We're not competing with each other. And yet so often that's what we default to. That's the way of the world. That's what we're used to. And then we come into the church and we're trying to prove ourselves. I'm better. I know more. I'm wiser. I've got more scripture memorized. All the, I'm holier. No, that's, that's not how we love one another. It's not about you or me. It's all about Jesus. He's the winner. He, he's the king, and he's the king not just of the hill. Jesus is the king of the world. He's the king of the church. We have nothing to boast about. Every gift comes from God. In Christ, there's nothing to prove, and so we don't have to compete with one another. You know what we get to do instead? We get to build each other up, strengthen one another, increase our passion for God together. While we were weak, Christ the strong one died for us. So for loving one another, we will not be arrogant or rude towards one another. We're not out to just win arguments and, and prove ourselves. No, we're, we're out to love one another. And this means seeking where we can to defer to one another. Where do you want to go? What do you want to read? What do you want to do today? Not being short with each other, making snarky comments about each other, slandering or gossiping about one another, holding grudges. We love one another by rejoicing when we see another Christian growing in holiness and increasing in passion for God. I love sanctification in like the end process. Like I love the thought about me being more and more like Jesus, but it's really hard in the middle there where, where I read scripture and I say, I want that. I want to love your people more and more. And then internally I struggle and I wrestle with loving God's people more and more. And then when I see other people loving as as they've been called to love, there can be this sense of like, oh man, I want that. You know, it, it, I, I think the, the, sanctified, the, the sanctified element of, of coveting comes out in this way. It, it's not that we're coveting stuff, we're coveting holiness. <laughs> when we see people growing in Christ or, or increasingly being used by God, we say, I want that. And instead, if we're loving one another, here's what's going to happen. said, praise God. That's so great. You got to share the gospel with a coworker, a family member, and, and, and they responded by professing faith in Christ. They're going to be here on Sunday next week to, to worship with God's people as a Christian. That's awesome. Instead of going quickly to, man, I want that. I, why, why is nobody responding to, to the gospel when I share it with them? If we're loving one another, we're going to celebrate together when God is at work in our lives. We're going to say, praise God. Keep on going, sister. Keep on going, brother. Keep on opening your mouth and sharing the truths of the gospel. We're going to know that God is at work in others and not just at, in work, at work in us. We're going to hope for one another. You want that? You're praying for that? You think the Lord's leading you that way? Let's pray. Let's hope for that. Let's ask God. We're going to endure with one another. I really believe that that's one of the essential elements of love that we're willing to bear with one another. That when things get hard, 
We don't turn on one another. Yes, we're going to get frustrated. Somebody's going to sin against us. And rather than, than turning on one another, rather than saying, you know what? We'll just agree to disagree. You go over there and I'll go over here and we'll just kind of coexist. No, love says, I, I'll work through this with you. I, I think you sinned against me. I, I think you wronged me. Let's talk about it. Not so that I can crush you and prove that, that you sinned against me, but so that we can build each other up. So we can love one another. So that we can glorify God as other brothers and sisters here that we've reconciled. How sweet is that? So and so they were arguing. They haven't been friends for five years. They're together again. They're celebrating the gospel together. They're sitting by each other in church again. What happened? They're loving one another. They're bearing with one another through the good times and the bad. What, what happens in a healthy family? They're bearing with one another. And so that, that needs to happen within the church. If we're loving one another, we're going to bear with one another. Loving one another requires real effort. It's not super exciting all the time. You look back and you say, that, that is exciting. Look at the love that that church has for one another. That's exciting. But doing it day to day, working through the struggles, the ups and downs, being sinned against, sinning against other people, it, it requires energy. It requires faith. It requires trusting the Lord. And you know what it requires, church? For us to fight against our own sin. Our desire to, to do our own thing, to go our own way. A second passage that teaches us what it looks like to love one another is Romans 12, 9 through 13. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Here we see that it's not just going to come out our love for one another in our, in our interactions, in our conversations. Our love for one another means that we're going to do practical and at times very costly things for one another. We're going to make actual sacrifices when it comes to our time, when it comes to our energy, when it comes to our money. It also means discipleship. It means our own discipleship. As we grow in holiness, you know what's going to be a byproduct of that? I'm going to love you better. So when we hear that somebody's studying God's word, that they're digging into the word, you know what an end result of that is going to be? Their love for you, their love for me is going to increase. When we are confronted with the greatness of God, the beauty of God, the love of God. You know what that does? It changes us if we're Christians. We, we, we are changed by the love that we've experienced from God. Discipleship is one of the ways that we love each other. We invest in, in helping each other grow as Christians. So we grow as disciples and we help one another grow as disciples. And what happens? Love. We love one another by abhorring what is evil and holding fast to what is good. We use our passion, our excitement. You know, we can get so excited and passionate about so many things. And when the Bucks are making the playoff push, when the Brewers are doing well, we're passionate. We're giving high fives to strangers. We're getting excited. We're willing to spend a lot of money to go to those games, aren't we? Shift our, around our schedule. What if we, we channel that same passion, actually a godly passion, towards one another? where we use our excitement, our energy, our emotions to fan the flame of one another's faith in Christ, to serve one another, to make sacrifices that build each other up. We love each other, Christians, by helping to meet one another's needs, physical, 
but also emotional and relational. I know we've wrestled as a church with community groups at times. We've really pressed intergenerational, older and younger, having men and women together. Yes, there's places and avenues, and we're excited about the women's breakfast coming back, and we don't want to not have those too, but but we need to meet each other's needs when it comes to relationships and relational. There, there, there are godly older Christians that need to be with godly younger Christians. There are ungodly younger Christians that need to be with godly older Christians. Men need to hear from women. Women need to hear from men. All these things that God does when we spend time together and love each other and open our hearts and open our homes and open our checkbook and we say, I'll meet that need. And it's beautiful. It's wonderful. Don't you want to be a part of a church like that? And guess what, Christian? You're called to make that happen by how you live, how you treat the people in your church. Doing acts of service is a way that we love one another, praying for one another, and not just in person, but adding so-and-so to your prayer list at home where you're going through, with, if, if you have a family and you do nightly prayers, or you do morning prayers, praying for one another. Some of your young children might not know the people that you're praying for, but they know that mom or dad loves their church. You know why? Because their prayers are are filled with prayers for the saints. Not just prayers for their family, but prayers for their church family. Giving generously of our time, our money, our lives. Making corporate worship a priority. This is a family reunion every single time we gather. Yes, we're part of the universal church, but in God's providence and his sovereignty, he's brought us together in this church at this time to make much of Christ. Loving opportunities to love one another, seeking them, opening our homes. One of the things that I'm praying for as a church is that we would grow in hospitality, that we would not see our homes as a secret place that we run away to and just keep keep for ourselves and don't let anybody in. But, but our homes would be open places where, yes, non-Christians come and we have meals and we share the gospel, but hospitality would increase among us. That we would have meals with one another. That, that people in the church would say, come over for dinner. That, that's a normal thing. That I, as a pastor, this, this would warm my heart to hear more and more of people having meals together in their homes. The weather's getting nicer. You got a small house. You, know, you, you find it hard to cook. You know, get outside and have people over. Meet at the park. Show hospitality. Open your home. Open your checkbook, your wallet. Church, if we truly love one another, We will not do so merely out of duty to one another, but out of love for God. We will see loving one another as an opportunity for us to put our doctrine into practice and obey the God who saved us. You have been so loved. You have been perfectly loved, Christian. Let that love that you have been loved with bubble up out of you and towards other Christians. So Christian, I ask you this morning, what I believe John is pressing on clearly in this passage. Do you love God's people? Do you really love them? And if so, how are you loving them? Again, I'm not asking this question to make you feel bad. I'm asking this question to challenge you and ultimately this church to be a more loving church. Are you being patient and kind towards your brothers and sisters? Are you abhorring what is evil, not just in their lives, but in your own life? Are you bearing with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you committed to loving the people in this church, even the ones that you might find very, very difficult to love? If you want to grow in sanctification, here's what I would tell you to do. And maybe wait a day or two so this, they're not thinking that this happened because I just said it. 
Pursue the very people in this church that you find the most difficult to love. Have them over at your house. Take them out for coffee. Love them. And I'm confident that if you're committed to loving them, the Lord will bless that. He, he will use it to glorify him and strengthen the bonds that we have among one another in this church. Don't shy away from loving one another. Pursue, press into. God is love and the source of our love. God has loved us by sending his son to die for us so that we would have life. And because the God who is love has loved us, has loved you and me, church, we must, we ought, it is our duty to love one another. Let's pray. God, I know personally, and I, I would gather that others in this room feel this as well, it can be so hard to truly love one another. There is sin in our hearts. There are things that we've allowed to fester and grow. Thoughts that we have thought about one another that need to be addressed and attacked, confronted, and put aside. You have loved us in the most amazing and perfect way by sending your son. You love us. You care for us. You're patient with us. You're kind towards us. You're good towards us. You're committed to us. Father, all these things that mark your love for us, may they mark our love for one another. Lord, increase our passion to love you and to love one another, our commitment. Help us to, to love each other with a sacrificial love, a love that is not for our benefit, but for the benefit of one another. Use our love for one another to increase the health of this church. That through the trials and the sufferings, we would be a bright beacon of light in this community, full of love for you and love for one another, that is attractive to a world that is so in desperate need of love. Help us to overcome our hard hearts towards one another, our frustrations, our lingering things that, that, that need to be set aside so that we would love you and in so doing, accomplish our mission to glorify you, God. Making disciples, treasuring Christ above all together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.